Second Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. All right. How are we? Good. Hey, new book, everybody. Second Peter, we just uh, finished a very, very long sort of walk through First Peter, 29 weeks, and then we had a surprise mission Sunday, um, and I needed a week to sort of gather stuff, and I'm writing a class right now that we're going to teach in September um, called Watermark 301 Engagement, not engagement like we're in love and we're getting married. It's engagement as in with God, like how to engage your spiritual life every day, throughout your day, and have a life that is sort of centered and aligned with what God is doing in the world. So, um, I'll be teaching about that, so I was writing some of that this week, and studying up on, on, on this passage. Um, and I got nothing else to say. Let's pray, let's get into it. All right, let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you that uh, you have given us a place uh, to come together um, as your people. Thank you that... Uh, You've brought each and every one of these people here this morning um, to come together as your body. I ask that uh, good things would be done in our hearts this morning, that we would be more aligned with, with you, with your gospel, with your word, with what you're doing in this world. Um, speak through me. Remind me of all the things that I've studied this week. Allow me to communicate freely. Um, allow us to be um, released and free from distractions and to just be very present and to allow ourselves to be filled by your word. Thank you, God. In your name, amen. All right, so 2 Peter um, is not like 1 Peter at all. Um, It is um, not a book that when people are quoting scripture, that they're like, well, 2 Peter says this, so take that. Um, People don't usually quote 2 Peter very often because there's not um, that many like one-liners in there. There's not like some really heavy-hitting theological stuff there's uh, not a lot of pastors that honestly preach through the book of Second Peter. Um, and to be honest, I'm probably only doing it because it's attached to First Peter. Um, but no, I, I, think, I think there's some stuff in here we can find. Uh, so I, I found this quote this week uh, by E.F. Scott. He's a New Testament scholar. He's talking about Second Peter. And he says, It is far inferior in every respect to First Peter and is the least valuable of all New Testament writings. <laughs> so to that I say, challenge accepted. We're going to find value here in this book. Um, so the question is, why would people think like this about this book? Well, for starters, it's um, honestly, the writing style is, is just not as good. It's not as artistic. Um, the end of First Peter says, um, I wrote to you by the hand of Silvanus. Um, that generally means that he was telling Silvanus what he wanted to tell them. Silvanus was writing it down. And perhaps Silvanus was just a really artsy guy. And like, I'm going to church this up a bit. and made it really nice and fancy. Um, and um, perhaps Peter wrote this book with his own hand. Perhaps he had someone else write it um, that just wasn't as um, linguistically, you know, blessed in that way. Uh, Whatever it is, it's just not as, just beautiful. It's just not as beautiful. Um, Secondly, um, there's no other way to say it. It's it's not as Jesus-y as 1 Peter. (laughs) I know it's in the Bible and all, but it's not as Jesus-y. In that respect, I mean that it's not... Um, about uh, the teachings of Jesus. It's not generally, it doesn't mention Jesus all that often. It doesn't talk about um, all the different 
things that Christians should believe. It's very specific. It's a very specific book. It's written about very specific things to a specific group of people. Uh, Remember, when we are starting a new book, I always try to remind you of this. And don't take this the wrong way, but the Bible was not written to you. Okay? It was written to specific people in specific times. You are the descendants of those people. We are followers of Jesus. We are Christians. These books were written to ancient Christians in certain cities. And so we read it and we say, well, what does this book say? Uh, Here I am, Tommy, 21st century um, America, reading this book. And and what does it say for me? Um, But the fact is you should... You should think, well, okay, who was this written to? Where were they? What city were they, were they in? What language did they speak? What was the predominant religion of the day? What were the uh, political ideologies of the day? What was the government system they were living under? Were they under persecution? Were they not? Um, and all these things come into question. Um, context is very important. And if you understand the context, you'll understand the, the intent of the author and the people. And if you can get in that mindset, if you can listen to it as an original listener would have been, and hear what he's saying then, oftentimes you'll find far more depth and beauty in it. And then you sort of apply that idea and principle to our lives today. Um, so what is the context of this book? Well, uh, verse 14 says this, I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ has made very clear to me. Um, and I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at, at any time to recall these things. So he says, somehow he knows he's about to die. He's probably writing from prison. Um, we know that he was martyred for, he was arrested and killed basically for um, being a follower of Jesus, for proclaiming that Jesus, the message of Jesus, can bring healing and reconciliation and salvation to the world. Not Caesar, not Nero, not Domitian, um, none of the Roman emperors. Um, and this was treasonous, and so he was arrested, uh, he was crucified. Uh, and killed by crucifixion, and as church history has it, he said, um, I only ask that you crucify me upside down because I'm not worthy to die like Jesus died, which is much more painful. And so he was crucified upside down. Um, So on his deathbed, normally when we write letters from our deathbed, I mean, I haven't done that yet, but I imagine what I would write would be like really things of love and maybe things that I regret and things that I want my children to know that I have learned towards the end of my life. Um, he doesn't do that. He has spent his entire life traveling, teaching, planning churches. Um, His younger years were spent following this rabbi Jesus, and the rest of his life has been spent teaching the message of this rabbi Jesus. Um, Because what he witnessed in watching the life of Jesus was life-changing, and he knew it would bring about the salvation of the world, the death burial, and resurrection of Jesus was a huge deal to him. And so he was traveling with the other apostles um, in different parts of the world, planting churches. Um, And so on his deathbed, he writes a letter to a specific group of people who had apparently come in from another religion, and they were new Christians, and they were bringing in pagan teachings with them. And they were teaching doctrines which were not what Jesus taught, were not what the early apostles believed. And this letter is written for the purpose of Confronting bad doctrine. Very specific bad doctrine. Um, Doctrine about resurrection, about afterlife, about Christian ethics, um, about how Christians should live their lives. Um, Keep that in mind as we study this book because there is a tone with which he writes um, to rebuke bad doctrine that is beautiful. 
There's a way that he talks to them about doctrine. Um, and so with all this in mind, I'm going to start right here where you do in verse 1. Um, so if you, don't, if, you, if you need a Bible, there's Bibles in your seats. If you don't have one at home or whatever, you can just take that one. We'll, we'll purchase a new one, I think. And I may be getting in trouble and, and put a new one in there. Um, boom, just emptied the budget. Um, also, there's free apps. So all over the interweb. So do that. Um, so I'm going to start here. Simeon, Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. So I'm going to stop for a second. He calls himself to start off with Simeon Peter. And the first thing, question I ask when I, when I read this is, why is he calling himself Simeon Peter? This is new. He hasn't called himself Simeon yet. Um, well, when he calls himself Peter, he's speaking from what he is known as a disciple of Jesus, someone who walked with Jesus and who knows. When he's speaking as Simeon Peter, he's hearkening back to another time in his life that was very, very specific. Um, a time when... Um, he was known for having some new information about God, doing something new. And to really find out what that is, um, you have to go back to Acts chapter 15. Because in Acts chapter 15, there's this gathering of all the heads of the churches, um, and they gather in Jerusalem, the Jerusalem Council, and they are talking about uh, some things that need to be ironed out. And Peter is there. And... There's lots of debate about whether or not the new followers of Jesus need to become Jews. Need to, you know, circumcision, the whole deal. Um, and a bunch of them are like, no, no, we don't. Um, and <laughs> turns out they were right. God said they don't. Um, so the question is, how did they come about this knowledge that the people didn't need to become Jews? Um, so there's one part in verse 13 where James stands up. Um, after there's been all these arguments, James stands up and it says this. After they finished speaking, James replied, brothers, listen to me. Simeon, that's Peter. So he points at Simon, at Simeon Peter, and he says, Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. So he says, <clears throat> he says, Simeon Peter has had this experience. God did something in his presence where he visually was there and, and witnessed God saving and bringing people into the flock who were not Jews. They were Gentiles. He had something happen to him where God directly communicated to him this brand new thing which no one had heard of. And that's the idea that the grace of God is open to everyone. The blessing of God, the love of God is open to everyone in the world. And anyone can come to the table and be blessed and be graced and find mercy and receive salvation through the work of Jesus. That it's not just limited to one small group of Jews anymore. That God is moving this thing forward, doing something different. So, the question is, what was it that happened to Simeon, Peter, um, that changed everything? Well, to, to find that, you have to back up a little farther, five chapters, to Acts chapter 10. And there's an interesting story here about Cornelius. He was... Uh, a soldier in the Roman army. He was a centurion, meaning that he was in charge of at least 80 soldiers, probably 80 to 100 soldiers. Um, and it says some interesting things about him. It says this. There was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household and gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. So we have this guy, Cornelius. He's not Jewish. He doesn't know Yahweh. 
he doesn't really know who God is. But he knows a few things. He knows that there is a God. He knows that this God is loving. And he knows that he should do these specific things that he thinks God wants him to do. Namely, spend a lot of time in prayer, listening to God. Um, giving of his money to the poor. Working for justice and taking care of those around him. Whom he believes God cares about. Um, and it was not just him. He had brought along his entire household to live this way. And so every day, he gets on his knees, he serves people, and he prays. And he says, God, I'm doing this for you. And something really interesting happens. In verse 4, God speaks to him. And if you read the passage, I'm not going to put all of it up because it's kind of long. It says that when God spoke to him, he was absolutely terrified. Almost like, whoa, somebody is there. Somebody is listening. Okay? This is fascinating. In verse 4, it says this. Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon, who was called Peter. So God says, hey, I've seen what you've done. I heard your prayers. I've been there. I've been listening. I've been watching. And it's time for you to know me. I want you to send some of your men to a town called Joppa. They're going to knock on some doors, and they're going to start asking for a guy named Simon Peter. Um, so he does. Three days later, something interesting happens. It's about a three-day journey to Joppa. Three days later, Peter, in Joppa, is on the roof of a house, and he's praying, and it says this. Peter fell into a trance and saw the heavens open and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air, and there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. So Peter's up there, and the text says that he's waiting for dinner to be made. And maybe it was taking a long time. He was very, very hungry, but he fell into a trance. And in this trance, a sheet comes down from heaven filled with all kinds of animals. It opens up. And there are clean and unclean animals. They had all been touching each other. So now even the clean animals are unclean. And God hears a voice from God. And God says, hey, eat those. Stand up. Take a knife. Go nuts. Kill and eat. Sorry, vegans. Sorry. Um, (laughs) Now, this was unheard of because Peter is a devout Jewish man. There were certain things they were allowed to eat. There were certain things they were not allowed to eat. If those not allowed to eat things, touch the allowed to eat things. They couldn't even eat those things. And so there was lots of rules and regulations on what they could wear, what they could eat, what they could plant in their gardens. Um, they couldn't get tattoos, nothing. There's all kinds of really oppressive things. Um, and so he, look what it says. It says, rise, kill, and eat, Peter. And Peter says, by no means, God, because I'm a follower of God, and God told me not to do this, God. So God, I'm not going to do this. So he's arguing with God about the things God told him. Um, and then God says, God says it to him again, and, and he says, hey, what, what God has called clean, do not call common. So, let's lay this out. Peter believes one thing. The sheet descends, and this event happens, and then Peter believes another thing. And so this is a moment in Peter's life where everything that he believed, he believed that God called a small group of, of people in the world to do all of his work, now suddenly this event happens and he suddenly understands that no, God is taking this forward. He is opening up to more people. He is opening it up to everyone. 
And then something interesting happens. God speaks to him again. It says, while Peter was pondering the vision, the spirit said to him, behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you were looking for. So, a few minutes earlier, if these guys had knocked on the door and said, Peter, we need you to come with us. We want to hear about God. Peter would have said, oh, I'd love to, but I'm Jewish and I'm not allowed to go to your house. I'm not allowed to hang out with you. I'm not allowed to really talk to you. I should probably shut the door right now before someone sees me um, because this isn't allowed to happen. But God is changing things. God is opening things up, making it bigger, making it just completely different. God is opening it up. And so, and so he opens the door after God has said, hey, you've been separating yourselves from unclean things for a long time, and that's going to stop now. And now there's no longer clean or unclean. You are now the same, and the grace of God is open to everyone. All right, so he goes down, he opens the door, and he goes with them. And he follows them all the way back to their town. They go to the house of Cornelius, and he gets in this house, and there's tons of people there. And they're all there to hear about God. They're all there to hear about God. Side note, this is, um, I know I talk a lot about my brother in the jungle. This is the exact same thing that kind of happened to him. They went to the jungles, and there was all kinds of people there gathered in huts who had been waiting and begging to the gods for generations for God to send someone to teach them what they called the God talk. They just wanted to hear why they existed. And it took a long time. They were sending runners, what they called runners, out of the jungle, a two-week trek. And these runners would go into find some city. They'd be, they'd be pretty much naked except for wearing what they called a gourd. And they would walk up to um, different people and they would, hey, we need to know the God talk. We need to know the God talk. And nobody would tell them. Okay? Um, these people are gathered in a house and they're all waiting. They want to hear about God and nobody would tell them. And so Peter goes and here's what he says when he gets there and he sees them. He says in Acts 10, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a, Jew, for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. He says, I suddenly realize we're all in the same boat. So let's back this up. He believes one thing about God. This sheet comes down, this experience happens, and now he suddenly believes something else about God. And so this experience has turned into this huge doctrine, a doctrine that we all hold to today because of this experience that he had. We don't have the experience anymore. All we have is the doctrine. So there's things we know about God. We know, we know now that the, the, the grace of God is open to everyone. But we didn't always know that. We now have a doctrine. But now it is separated from this Sheet, if you will, from this experience. I would argue that disciplines are only important because they, they, they I'm sorry, doctrines are only important because they, they point back to these experiences. And stay with me because I'm going to talk, I'm going to try to explain something here. Um, we've spent so long taking all these experiences of people and turning them into doctrines and we, that we've actually started to look at the Bible as if God sat there at the holy desk and he wrote the whole thing down and he closed it and he tossed it out of the sky and it hit the ground and we opened it up and we read, okay, so this is who God is. It's all, like, it's, it's all laid out here. This is all the things we need to know about God. Um, in a sense, it's right. In a sense, it's completely wrong. Um, every doctrine that we have came about like this. 
there was someone, an early follower of Jesus who had this experience with God, wrote it down, and we learned something about God, about who God is, and now we all hold to it. I would argue that we now spend too much time trying to memorize all of the little doctrines, and we, 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 spe- we put so much emphasis on, okay, we're going to learn exactly everything about who God is, and it's all just head knowledge. But I would argue that what we actually should be probably doing is taking these doctrines and turning them back into experiences, and what I mean is this. If you really believe that God is gracious, that grace saves people, then go out into the streets and take grace and bring it to people. Be gracious. If you really believe that God is merciful, go out and experience mercy by being merciful. If you really believe that God is loving, go out and love people. If you really believe that God is just, get out there and work for justice. And in these things, you are taking the doctrines of God and you are proving them to be true because you will experience things that the original Christians experienced and then you will really learn to know who God is. We spend so much time trying to mentally ascend and argue ourselves and other people and and work it out like a math equation into who exactly God is and we work out this huge chalkboard in a math equation and we say, see, and, and all of this makes perfect sense and it equals X and X is God. So obviously there is a God um, and it, it makes sense and so now I believe it because it all makes sense. I would argue if you're struggling with faith and, and struggling with intellectually making sense of all of this, um, I wouldn't start with information. If God is love, you will find God in loving people. If God is merciful, you will find God in being merciful to people. If God is, and we practice it, that we take these doctrines, and the doctrines are important, not because they give us information, but because they tell us what we are supposed to be doing and who we are following, and this is how we meet him. Okay? So, who is Simeon Peter? Simeon Peter is the version of Peter who understands that God changes people, that God reveals things to people that absolutely rock their world. I am perpetually in a state of looking back four years at myself and saying, wow, I believed so differently. And I hope I always am. There should be this movement. I don't believe God wants you to just stay the way you are. I believe God wants you to change and to grow and to move towards him in deeper and deeper ways. And when people change, I applaud it. I think it's good. So, Peter is somebody who's actually going to write this book and confront doctrine. And he's going, so doctrine is important to him. He wants to make sure they get it right. And so the way he starts his letter is fascinating. He starts it like this. So Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, so that's who he is. Here's he writing to. To those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. So he's writing to, we find out later that he's writing to people with people that he considers to have bad doctrine. And he's writing to them and he's saying, he's not, what he's not saying is, Um, you who think you are Christians, but you're really not. What he's saying is, those who have equal standing, we we are both brothers and sisters. We are are the same. We are followers of Jesus, not because of anything we've done, but because of the righteousness of Jesus. So I'm writing to you, my brothers and sisters, who have some messed up doctrine, and and we're going to talk about this, but first and foremost, I'm going to lay this on the table. We're brothers and sisters. We are the same. Jesus is the one who has saved us. Not our own work, not our own intense studies. It is Jesus. 
It was a gift. So the word that he uses there of equal standing is the word isotimos, and, and it's made up of two words. Isos means equal, and timos means honor. Um, this, is a, a spe- this word had a specific meaning in ancient times. It was a word that was used for foreigners who were moving into a city filled with native peoples. So you were a native people group, and other foreigners would move in, and they would, if they became to a place where they received all the same rights and privileges that you have, that legally they were the exact same as you, this is what this means, of equal standing. So he's even writing to people who were part of other, other religions, and they came and they joined the people of God, and he, and he writes to them and says, hey, I want you to know you're not lower than me. God doesn't look at me any better than you. We are Christians. We are the same. And we're going to start there. So if I'm going to confront you in some problems with your doctrine, we're going to start here at a place of understanding that Jesus is the center of all this, not us. So um, a few weeks ago, we had a a visit from um, some representatives of the, the Christian Missionary Alliance, who is our denomination. And they are planting churches in the Middle East, all over the place. This particular group of people is planting churches in Syria, um, Afghanistan, Iraq, and Kurdistan. If you were here last week, you heard that we're partnering with them at their work in Kurdistan, where they tell us that lots and lots of people are fleeing Syria for their lives. Um, Women and children fleeing Syria, and we want to be on the ground there to help them find aid. Um, We want to show them the love of Christ, um, give them the hope of resurrection. Because resurrection is what this is all about. Bringing things back to life. And we believe Syria can be fixed through the love and the grace of Jesus. And so um, the CMA representatives came here and they worshiped with us. And they go to a lot of CMA churches. And he made a point of pulling us aside and saying, hey, I want you to know what we experienced at Watermark was nothing short of amazing. And I said, why? And they said, because it's such a diverse group of Christians. He said, this never... Diverse groups of Christians don't exist because they tend to fight and destroy each other. And he said, you know how it is in Syria? He says, in Syria, where we are planting churches, it is so distraught, the situation is so bad that when you meet somebody who is a follower of Jesus, whoa, yeah. When (laughs) When you meet someone who is a follower of Jesus, um you would never even dare think of separating yourselves from them. You would hug them, and you would pray with them, and you would encourage them, you would remind them of the gospel, and you would gather together, and you would sing songs in these churches with these people who were terrified of what is probably coming their way, much like the audience of First Peter. And you worship with them. And he says, you know what we don't do? He said, we don't do what American churches do where we start 40, literally 41,000 different denominations, all separated by various little things. I literally, when I was young, saw a church fight over whether or not people should baptize people three times forwards or once backwards. We do this. This is what we do. This is what happens when we take doctrines and we just leave them doctrines and we don't apply them. And we don't live them out. We don't make them action. And so he writes to them, and he starts off by telling them, hey, I'm not here to separate myself from you. I want you to know that. We're living in a very difficult time. They were all about to be rounded up and killed. He says, I'm, not, I'm here to help. I just, want to, I just want to ensure the purity of this message. 
And so I'm going to write to you and I'm going to correct some stuff. But he does not say to them, get out, you're teaching things that I disagree with. He would never do that. He would say, I disagree, but we're still Christians. We're brothers, we're sisters. Let's talk. Now, um, there's a word he uses here. Um, the word obtained. He says, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. The word obtained is not a word that means um, I worked really hard and I got something and I earned something or I studied a lot and I found some information. The word obtained is a specific word, Greek word. It's, it's lankano, which means allotted. It is the word we talked about several weeks ago. It's the word that refers to the throwing of dice. In other words, it means it was a, 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 by chance. It was random. That it was a a gift, in other words. It refers to the, the casting of lots or the rolling of dice. And what they're saying when they say this is that you did nothing to earn it. It was given to you. This is really important for all of us to understand if we are actually gonna have unity in church. Each and every one of us were born into a country, in a state, in a city, into a family that put us on a path to where we would be gathered in Tampa, Florida at Watermark Church talking about Jesus and believing certain things. You had nothing to do with that birthplace. Given the roll of dice, you could have easily been born in Syria where you would right now be carrying an AK-47 and fighting to kill Christians. Your salvation, your faith is a gift to you from God. There, but for, the grace of, but, but for the grace of God go I. None of us have any reason to boast in, in anything that we have attained. We boast in Jesus and what he did. Paul writes constantly about this. This is, is how we celebrate our faith. Now, um, I know someone who several weeks ago was at a funeral. Um, and there was this reception at the funeral at the end of it and basically they're eating a meal they're sharing a meal and people are getting up on the stage talking about the life of this person who had died and the person got to their table and looked around and saw lots of people in their family who they knew they disagreed with theologically politically and on so many other levels and they all refused to sit and share a meal together at a funeral this is what we do when we don't realize that our own faith is a gift. This is what happens when we forget that Jesus is our savior, that we do not save ourselves. If we remember that Jesus is the savior and that nothing of our own devices saves us, then we become very, very free. And let me explain how this works. There is, if you think about, so if a sentence was gonna go like this, if Christ then you are free. If Jesus is the savior, then you are free. So that means that kingdoms are not our savior. No earthly kingdom can save us. We believe that in the end, Jesus will reign, grace will be the rule, love will be the law, things will be made whole again, things will be made right again, and earthly kingdoms will all fall. This means our own kingdom, America, will fall. When you realize this, that Jesus will rule and that our own country and every other country will fall, pass away and fall, then you are free from a lot of things. You start to look at things like politics and you say, well, each and every idea in politics, each and, you know, 
con- conservatism or, or liberalism or progressivism or socialism or communism or capitalism, all of it, all of this contains human flaws because of our sin that will in the end destroy itself. Every single one of them will. None of them will stand. They will all fall. But Jesus will not. And when you realize this, you realize, oh, I'm, I'm free then. I am not trapped by earthly devices. I will not play their games. We are getting ready to enter into a very, very long political season. Very long. Facebook is going to get very noisy. (laughs) I want to remind you, Jesus is the Savior. Jesus. Every earthly kingdom will fall. And so have your opinions. Vote the way you will. But practice the teachings of Jesus. If all the Christians in America were to get together, understand what Jesus taught, understand how doctrines really work, and practice them in this world, we would bring about such change that nobody would know what to do with it. Justice would just roll through the streets. Now, this also means, if Jesus is our Savior, then we are free. This also pertains to earthly borders. In the end, Jesus will set everything right and he will rule. And if this is true, every earthly kingdom will fall, every earthly border will be broken down, and there will eventually be one people, God's people. And he will be at the center of it all. And if we realize this, this doctrine, if we realize this and we put this into practice, then we realize we are free from judging people based on their origin, their race, their ethnicity. We are free from these earthly constructs because it's not going to stand forever. We don't have to play tribal warfare anymore. We are free. Jesus is the Savior. This also means, and this is the touchy part if none of those other ones were, um, it speaks to our theology as well. There will come a day where we all will stand before God and we will know God as we are known. And I think the most predominant thing that will be said on that day is, oh, so I was wrong. About lots of things. Tons and tons of things. My grandfather used to always say, when we all get to heaven, what a day of correction that will be. We, we will just realize, oh, okay, I was way off. Um, but there will be a day when God's people know God as we are known by him. If this is true, then you are free from sectarianism as a follower of Jesus. You're free. You don't have to play the game. You can sharpen, you can talk, you can confront doctor. This is what Peter understands. This is something really important that Peter gets that we just fail to understand. This is something the Syrian Christians understand that we fail to understand is that Jesus is the Savior. He unites us, not our theological math equations. And so, in love, we bind ourselves together, we take communion, we confess that Jesus is the savior of the world. And then we lovingly can talk. See, what he's doing here is he's saying, we are going to talk about doctrine, but before we do this, I want you to fully understand, I love you. We have a relationship. We have a history. And this is how effective relationships, this is how effective um, confrontation of doctrine works. Over long periods of time, 
rooted in love, centered on Jesus, not centered on finding who's in, who's out, and separating from them. It's very different from what we do today. Somehow we've come to the point where we think the most effective thing we can do is put out a blog post or a one-liner on Facebook. Not effective. We need to be bound together in Jesus. I say all this because honestly, I, I think our generation is coming to a point where we're kind of done with the separation into smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller groups. It's just not the way it's supposed to be. And we know this. And so I, for one, am looking for followers of Jesus to worship with. And I'm glad I found some. And so we're going to take communion, and we do this every single week. And before we take communion, our servers, you guys can go ahead and get ready. I want us to focus in on this last thing that he wrote in verse 2. Here's how we ended it. So he says who he is, he says who he's writing to, and then he says this, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. He says the knowledge of Jesus as you get to know Jesus, um, and the word knowledge is not information, it's different. We're going to talk about it next week. It's the word epigenosis. Look it up. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's, it ha- it's heavy on relationship and experience. As you know Jesus, as you move towards Jesus, you are moving towards grace and peace. Maybe you are here today and you are finding that your life is getting less peaceful with people, that you are in a lot more fights now than you used to be, and your filter doesn't work as well as it used to that's coming out of your mouth. I would ask you that maybe you need to search your heart because maybe you're actually moving away from Jesus. And as we move towards Jesus, we are told that we will find more grace and more peace and our life will be much, much easier. So as we go into communion today, I I want us to ponder the grace of Jesus. I want us to ponder the gift of our own salvation and our own faith. It's not anything that we have earned. It's something God has just given to you. You can celebrate it. Celebrate your faith, but don't take pride in it. Be thankful for it. And I want us to ponder how we can take these things we know about God and actually apply them to our lives and live them out. Not just know them, but to live them. And then I want all of us to think about the ways that we have been, the parts in our life that have become more filled with strife. If something is becoming more filled with strife and, and more turbulent, that's a sure sign that it's, that it's moving away from Jesus. Name it. Bring it back. Realign it. So our communion servers, you guys can spread it out around the room. Um, there's two elements in communion. Um, there's, there's the bread and there's the wine. The bread is the body of Christ broken for all of us. Um, we take it, we dip it in the wine, and the wine symbolizes the blood of Christ spilled for all of us. And we eat it, and we remember what Jesus did, the pain and suffering that he went through on the cross so that we could find reconciliation with God, so that we could collectively be called God's people, his church. And then we, uh, we eat it, we take it down inside of us, and we say, God, touch my heart with the places... Uh, with, with the gospel, touch, touch the places in my heart that need to be touched that haven't been touched yet and, and turn them towards you. So let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for everything that you have given us. Thank you for our own salvation. Thank you for our own faith. It's not something that we dug up in books and, and, and through our own efforts. It is something that, that, that is a gift from you. Let us never take for granted the gift of our faith. So when we meet people with less faith, may we be more graceful. When we meet people with no faith, may we be graceful. 
knowing that there, but for the grace of God, go we. We love you, Father. Be with us now. In your name, amen.